I know your heart's been blessed by the great music this morning. And I want to thank you for so many of you coming to this 815 service. That's really going to help us meet needs in the next couple of hours. So God bless you for being here. Uh, we're going to be looking in John 20 with just two verses that we'll read. I'll tell the stories of John 20 and 21 in a minute. But first, let's remind each other of the gospel by quoting John 3.16. Then join with Christians all over in praying the Lord's Prayer. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Let's pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. On this good Easter morning, I'm going to walk through the stories that we find of the resurrection appearances that John recorded for us in his gospel. John gave more space to the resurrection than the other three gospels. He gave two chapters. They just gave one. And those chapters that he gave are long chapters. So we'll look at that. And I'm going to read, just to whet your taste, John 20, verse 27 and 28. Then he said to Thomas... Put your finger here. Look at my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Don't be faithless, but believe. Thomas responded to him, my Lord and my God. Two lengthy chapters, but really it's the story of three different people who encountered Jesus after he rose. The first person that he talks about in John 20 is Mary Magdalene. Now Mary's an interesting person. In Luke 8, we have one little line about her past. Uh, They're listing the followers of Jesus who were female. Jesus was radical in the prominence that he gave to women to be his followers who traveled with him. And when it lists one of the followers, it says, Mary Magdalene, out of whom he cast seven demons. That's all we know. There have been some who said, well, she must have been a prostitute. Not necessarily. I have encountered folks in this country, but especially in third world countries, that were under demonic power. It is a scary thing to be around them. They're out of control. Oftentimes they are filthy. The uh, Gospels usually include the word unclean spirit when it talks about them being under the control of, of Satan. And so they literally get filthy. She would have been somebody you would have run from instead of run toward, or somebody that you would have hurled insults or curses at. And that was her life until she met Jesus and then Jesus cast all seven of those demons out and she became a wonderful person and now this woman that everybody run ran from now she's a part of a group Uh, she's loved she's welcomed and she could never get over that in fact I don't believe anybody that's listed in the New Testament as his follower loved Jesus more than Mary Magdalene and so it shouldn't surprise us when they arrest him When they put him through that mock trial, she's there out in the courtyard. When they tell him to pick up a cross and carry it, she follows him all the way, even after he has the cross taken from him and put on Simon's shoulder. She goes all the way to Golgotha. 
She's there when they put the nails in his hands. She watches all six hours of his agony, including three hours in total darkness, could not leave him. And then at three o'clock in the afternoon, he says, it is finished. It's all over. But it takes a while after that because they've got to figure out what are they going to do with this body? And Joseph Arimathea gets permission. He has to go to Pilate. That takes time. Gets the body. They take it down. The sun is about to set on that Friday afternoon when they've only gotten the, the robes wrapped around him. They, they have not been able to do all the perfuming and things that they would normally do, but you got to stop because it's the beginning of the Sabbath. Nothing can be done till daylight on Sunday morning. So they walk away from the tomb. They watch as the men put a huge stone in front of them. They think, what are we going to do Sunday morning? And then Sunday morning comes. Didn't have to worry about moving the stone. <laughs> God had already moved it. And all she could do was look. One of the details that John gives us says that she kept looking and crying. She couldn't get her eyes off that empty tomb. And, And then finally, Jesus shows up and speaks, but she doesn't even turn around. The reason she didn't recognize him is she didn't even turn around. And she said, hey, hey, did you take the body? Would you tell me where my my Savior is? And then he said one word, and it changed her life. He simply said, Mary. And then she turned around and said, Rabboni, and she grabbed him. Now, the King James said that Jesus says, touch me not. Now, the Greek is a little different than that. The implication of the Greek is that she had grabbed him. She was touching him, and he was saying, you got to quit touching. In other words, I think what happened was she thought to herself, I lost you once. I'm never going to lose. I've got you now. I'm keeping you. And he says, no, no, you're going to have to let me go. I'm going to have to go to the Father. But here's the first encounter of someone with tears mourning over someone she lost. And then she goes and tells the disciples that Jesus is risen. They don't believe her until Jesus himself shows up. Now, for some reason, there's 10, not 11 disciples in the room. Judas has already hung himself. And so you've got Thomas missing, and we're not told why. But they're behind locked doors because they're so scared. And here Jesus just shows up. And the first thing he did was breathe on them. You know, when Adam became a living soul, it says God breathed the Holy Spirit into him. But we lost the Holy Spirit when Adam sinned. Now the Holy Spirit's breathed back into us. But Thomas isn't there. So he comes in late and they said, you're not going to believe this who we just saw. Jesus is risen. He said, I'll never believe that till I put my finger in the nail prints, till I put my hand in his side. And you know what? It's a week later before Jesus shows up again. It was that Sunday, the first time he appeared. It's another Sunday before he comes back. And this time Thomas is in the room and Jesus walks up to him and said, Is this what you need, Thomas? And Thomas doesn't even bother touching him. He knows it's real. He gets on his knees and he says, My Lord and my God. And that's basically chapter 20. Now chapter 21 Jesus had told them, we know this from Matthew specifically, he said, now go on to to Galilee. I think he wanted to have some intense time of teaching the disciples, so he told them to go on ahead of him. He made, they made their way to the, to Galilee, but Jesus is not on the same time schedule they are. He just doesn't show up for a while. And so what do they do? Peter says, you know what, boys? I think we need to go back to fishing. And I'm not wondering if Peter, I'm kind of wondering if Peter wasn't just planning to go back to fishing. You know, Peter had to be haunted since the night that he betrayed the Lord. Peter had said to Jesus, when Jesus said, all of you will fall away, he said, no, whoa, now, Lord, wait a a minute now. I can understand why you doubt these boys. I'm using the living Bible now. I can understand why you doubt these boys. 
but I'll be willing to die for you. And Jesus said, before the cock crows, you'll have denied me three times. And sure enough, in front of a little girl, he denies Christ three times, cusses the last time. And don't you know, he was haunted by that. He said, I love you more than all of these. I will stay and die for you. And he had failed Jesus when he needed him. So they go out and spend the night fishing, can't catch anything. And then as the morning begins to break, they see a man on the shore. He says, throw it out on the other side. And they did. And all of a sudden they had this huge catch. I got Peter saying, I've seen this one before. I know who this is. And so he dove overboard, swam ashore, and then Jesus meets them, has breakfast ready, and then Jesus asks him three times, Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Take care of my lambs. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Three times he had him say, I love you, because three times he said, I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. And here's this man who is a failure, and he's given a task. He said, I'm not through with you. I want you to continue on. Take care of my sheep. And let me give you the lessons we can take from these three stories about how Easter applies to this day and applies to people in this room. I want to make this as my thesis statement for the morning. Who is Easter for? Easter is for mourners. Easter is for doubters. And Easter is for failures. Let me take those in order. Easter is for mourners. I'm going to tell you something, folks. There's a lot of people that today is going to be the hardest day you've been, hardest Easter Sunday you've ever been through because it will be the first Easter Sunday that you've been without that person you love. Maybe it was your spouse. Maybe it was your parent. Maybe it was a child. But I'm going to tell you something. It hurts. That sense of separation. I've done so many funerals. I, I, I know I've done over a thousand funerals. And the thought that occurs to me is that one day either Karen or I will walk away from a service by ourselves. I can't imagine that. I, I can't imagine the devastation after someone I love like that. Either I'm gone or she's gone. But let me give you this thought. We have three times where Jesus raises somebody from the dead in the New Testament. And all three of those times... He not only raises the person, he gives them back to the family. You have Jairus and his little girl, and he brings the three disciples and Jairus and his wife into the room, and he raises the, the little girl, and it says then he gave the little girl to her parents. There's a reunion. You have the widow at Nain, and she'd already buried a husband. Now she's burying her only son, and he raises the son, and it specifically says... He gave the son back to the mother. And then you have Lazarus who has his two sisters weeping by his graveside. And Jesus brings the brother and brings them back to his sisters. That's what Jesus does. And that's what's ahead for you. Now, with that said, I want you to know this. That's our confidence. Jesus conquered death and Christians don't say goodbye. But that doesn't necessarily make it easy. Linda Berman became a Christian when she went through a divorce, raising three children, had a horrible custody battle. And although she'd been nominally a Christian, she'd never really sought the Lord until that time. And that, that drove her to dependency upon God. And she became so hungry for God's word. In fact, she, she said uh, she, she couldn't get enough, went to Bible studies, went to church every time the door was open. God just changed her life. But the one burden she had on her soul as she raised those kids to adulthood was that her last son, Paul, was not yet a Christian. And so she kept praying and kept pleading. 
And then in 2007, her uh, son attended church with her. He brought his girlfriend with him. She was so excited. He's back in church. He's listening to the gospel. And the pastor invited those who wanted to accept Christ to come forward. And he and his girlfriend came forward. And you know, his life was changed. She said, I noticed immediately he started sharing Jesus with his firefighter friends. And she could see the difference. But folks, two two months after he accepted Christ, he was killed while on duty. She said that would have been devastating if she didn't know for certain that he had accepted Christ. That made it better. But folks, even though you know someone's in heaven, that doesn't mean our hearts don't hurt. Let me read you what she said about her own grief. She said, grief is exhausting and ugly. Every sensory input, everything you hear, see and talk and think about becomes a reference to the one you lost. I remember in one of my grief books, someone wrote that God's grace is sufficient, but it's not an anesthetic. I would describe grief as putting your heart through a shredder continuously. So I want to tell you something, folks. Easter is for you if you're grieving, but that doesn't mean the grieving is going to not still be hard. It's just we mourn differently as those we, we have hope and the world does not. Second thing, Easter is for doubters. Easter is for doubters. I think most of us like Thomas because we all feel in some way that we've been there. I think if any Christian would be honest, no longer how strong your faith was, how long you've walked with God, there have been seasons when doubts crept into our minds. Is that right? Did that happen to you? And that's one of the reasons why I don't want to just slap Thomas around on Easter Sunday. Because that could have been me and it could have been you. But one of the great things that we can learn from this particular story is the one thing that brought him out of his doubt was standing in the presence of someone who was obviously, without a doubt, risen from the dead. And I want to give you this truth right now. Please listen to me. If you have doubts at all, I would strongly encourage you to get a book like Lee Strobel's The Case for Christ or anything like that because the evidence for the resurrection is so strong it can settle your doubts. I'll give you one story on that. Simon Greenleaf was a famous professor of law at Harvard. He wrote a book called A Treatise on the Law of Evidence that was, is still one of the main textbooks that law students have to read. Greenleaf was an atheist, and whenever it came time for Easter, he enjoyed telling his law students this was all a hoax made up by the disciples. Well, one day, one of his students, when he made a standard Easter statement, said this, Have you taken the laws of evidence and applied them to the resurrection of Jesus yet? Are you just deciding in advance without checking the evidence? So Simon Greenleaf went and checked the evidence for the resurrection and became a Christian. And he wrote a book that was his proofs of the resurrection of Jesus. But lastly, Easter is not just for mourners. Easter is not just for doubters. Easter is for failures. I think that hits all of us in this room. I think one of the things that happens as you get older, I can sit back, even this morning as I was thinking through this sermon, I thought of so many things that if I could go back in my ministry, I would do them differently. Dumb stuff. (laughs) Sometimes being insensitive. Sometimes just not knowing at the moment. But don't we tend to be haunted by our failures? And what Satan, who the Bible calls the accuser of the brethren, likes to do is take our failures from the past and say, go sit on the sideline. You're you're done. 
On New Year's Day, 1929, Georgia Tech was playing the University of California in the Rose Bowl. It was nearing the half when Roy Regals fell. Not only there was a fumble, he picked the fumble up and started running furiously. He ran 65 yards in the wrong direction. One of his teammates, a name named Benny Lom, realized that he was going to score for the other team. So he tackled him just before he got to the goal line, but that put them in a bad way. It was near the halftime. They had three downs and they were out near their own goal. So they decided to punt. As they punted from the end zone, Georgia Tech blocked the punt and was able to score. And so they went into half and they were behind. And the reason they were behind was because of one person, Roy Regals. They said when he went into the room, he didn't talk to anybody. He went to a corner, got a towel and put it over his head and just started sobbing. Now the coach, Coach Nib Price, usually would give a speech, but he didn't know what to say. So the men got in, sat down, and they had complete silence. Coach didn't have a speech this time. Finally, the official came in and said, three minutes to the next kickoff. And so all the coach did was, I guess he'd been thinking for all those minutes. He stood up and said, the same team that played in the first half is going to play in the second half. Go on, get out there. Well, Roy stayed at his seat. And the coach walked up to him and said, didn't you hear me, Roy? The same team that played in the first half is going to play in the second. He said, coach, I can't go out there. I've ruined you. I've ruined the University of California. I can't face that crowd in, 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 ever again. And the coach said, son, it's only been one half. There's a whole nother half. And they say that Roy Regals went out and played a game like nobody's ever played. Well, I want to tell you something. If you're here and you're haunted by your past and Satan has used those failures to say, go sit in the corner, don't you listen to him? Because here's what Jesus did. Jesus saw Peter, the one who had failed him three times, and he said, now this is what I want you to do. I want you to take care of sheep. Now, can I tell you something about sheep? Uh, all we like sheep have gone astray. Basically, what he said was, Peter, you went astray. Now I want you to go take care of a bunch of people that are going to go astray. Because failure is not the last word for a Christian. Uh, Michael Reitelnick is the professor of Jewish studies at Moody Bible Institute. He was raised in a strong Jewish neighborhood in New York City. He said, although it was a public school, everybody in this school was Jewish. I mean, that's just best, that's part of the reality in New York City. And so he grew up there. He said there was one boy who'd become a Christian and he kept sharing with him verses from the Old Testament. He says, have you seen this? Jesus fulfilled this. And this, this Christian kept pointing him to Old Testament verses that were fulfilled in Jesus. And so he became a Christian and he began to study for himself. And he just had that passion. He, he would go to student after student and say, I've got to tell you the good news. Jesus is the Messiah. These verses prove it. Well, they brought in a famous rabbi from Columbia University to speak to their to their school. He was a guest speaker. And so Michael Rodnick, as an enthusiastic teenager, called him up and said, would you be willing to debate me on whether or not Jesus is the Messiah? So the professor graciously said he would. And Michael Rydnick said it was a disaster. He said every time I threw out an argument, he could twist the scripture. He could, he could show that it could mean something else. He said, I was completely destroyed. He said, I walked off that stage and I thought, 
I guess I can never speak up for the Lord again. I failed him so much. I, I shamed Christ in my high school. And he, he almost gave up the thought of serving Jesus, but he went on, went to seminary, got his degrees and became a professor. 30 years later, there was a guy that came to his house. It wasn't in New York. It was somewhere else and was working on something that had broken. And he heard the accent and he said, I know where that accent is from. You're not just from New York City. You're from my neighborhood. And he said, what high school did you go to? And the guy said, I went to the same high school that Michael went to. And uh, he, the, the, the man that was working on the, on the house said, I see you're a Christian. He said, so am I. And so Michael asked him, how did you become a Christian? He said, well, you're not going to believe it. They had this rabbi come in. He was so smart. And we had this skinny kid from our high school that got up there and, and he just couldn't win the argument. But he kept quoting Bible passage after Bible passage. So I went out and brought a Bible. And then I started doing the work myself. And I began to see that Jesus did fulfill the prophecies. And Rodnick said, guess what? God used my worst failure. I want you to know, folks, if you're here today and you're a mourner, Easter's for you. If you're a doubter, Easter's for you. If you're a failure, <laughs> Easter's for you. Because mourning, doubt, and faith are not the last word for us Christians. Amen. Jesus conquered death and he gives us a new start. Will you pray with me? Lord, I pray your blessing on your people here today. Thank you for bringing every single one. I pray that they will know in their heart of hearts, Jesus, that you are risen. Meet the needs they brought with them here. Jesus, only you can give us hope after death. Jesus, only you can silence the doubts that Satan puts in our minds. Only you can tell us that we, we can still be used. I pray that happened today. In Jesus' name, amen.